there is 36 million freelancers in the US right now. It is a $5.4 trillion market and it's growing over 30%. And when we say growing, you can either say number of people freelancing or, or amount of money spent on freelancers in the US. And that 30%, I like to say no one knows, but directionally we can assume more than 30% growth year over year, significantly catalyzed by COVID. Um, when we talk about companies, over 90% of enterprise leaders are prioritizing freelancers. And the dirty secret of our industry is that most companies are already over half contractors. So Microsoft's 120,000 people. There's over 250,000 people because most are actually contractors. Likewise with Google and most tech companies. My guest on today's episode of The Infactor is Matthew Matola, co-founder and CEO of The Human Cloud. Matthew's personal mission of revolutionizing the freelance economy was inspired by his own experience when he found himself working on a project-by-project basis rather than as a more traditional employee. His book, by the same name as his company, The Human Cloud, is an international sensation revealing how top leaders are reshaping work with freelancers and AI. Matthew is also a trailblazer as a venture partner in Vitalize Venture Capital, providing advising and access to funds for freelance companies. Join us as we dive into Matthew's exciting entrepreneurial journey on The Infactor. So Matthew, thank you for joining me today on The Infactor. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited because we are launching this new series on um, the gig economy. And it's just fascinating to me to see the growth of this freelance work. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, questions that are coming up and I can't think of anybody better uh, to get get us started with this than you because you're you're really deep into this. You're co-founder and CEO of the Human Cloud, and we're going to talk about that company here in a few minutes. And you're the author of a book that I think came out a few years ago, actually, about AI and and gig work and freelance work. And uh, I'm of course everybody today is talking about AI. And it's really having an impact on all of us, um, you know, and, and in academics in, in particular, it's really interesting as professors are trying to figure out how to, how to deal with AI. So I'm really excited to hear more about your book, The Human Cloud. And then also you're an investor, right, in, in freelancers. And that's, that's really unique and interesting as well. So excited to find out more about you. So can you tell us, Matthew, a little bit more about The Human Cloud? And really, how did you get into this work? We were just talking about your time at Babson and some people we knew in common. So, um, you know, what what brought you into this space and and tell us how you got here? Yeah. So, so, okay. I like to say I have no skills, just the freelance economy. Like that's it. And what I mean by that is when I was graduating grad school, I remember, you know, asking a bunch of alumni, Hey, what, what do you wish when you were me? Right. Or what advice do you have for me? And they all said, you have to pick an industry or a skill. And so you have to either be a software developer or the, the best in an industry. And if you go the industry route, it'll be so much harder because you have to be in it for 20 plus years for someone to hire you. 
And so for me, that was freelance economy. I got kind of lucky that it's such a new field that I didn't have to wait the 20 years. But so for me, it all started actually when I was a student and I was a student athlete. So that's what paid for school. But that meant I couldn't get a summer job because we always had to, to play, you know, to, to play summer leagues and stuff. And so I couldn't do full time, but I still needed money. And so I went business to business in my hometown and said, hey, can you hire me on a contract basis? And for three years, I was working as a freelancer before that was even a term. And I loved it. I loved every second of it. But I thought that I had to grow up eventually. And so I did major in accounting and finance. I went over, worked at EY. And I kept just like yearning for that freelance time. And I still didn't call it freelancing. It was just working on a contract basis. I don't know. I guess you call it entrepreneurship, kind of. But so I then went to Babson College to basically say, let's make this a reality. And so I went to grad school there for a master's in entrepreneurship, tried to build a freelance marketplace before I even knew there was others around, totally failed. But then that's what opened my eyes to meeting actually where I met Corey, which was at Gigster. And so it all started from a place of it makes more sense to work as a freelancer than to sit full time at a company like EY or where my friends were. And I've been chasing that ever since. And so since then, I was early at Gigster, which was a software development network. After that, was at Microsoft, built their freelance product. After that, built a venture back company called VentureL that was a freelancer operating system. And all throughout this, I keep getting attracted back to helping enterprises scale freelance workforces, which just means helping Microsoft hire freelancers like me, you know, from 10 years ago. So, yeah. So that's, that's sort of my, my journey in a nutshell. And uh, what we do now is the human cloud, we're just consulting and advisory, which I say just because freelancing is at the core of everything we do and every freelancer is a consultant. So I've kind of always gone back to helping companies hire freelancers, scale freelance workforces. It's been the way I've always paid rent. So yeah, we'll, we'll so stop that, there. So there's a lot in there uh, to talk about. And I really, I, I love that this started with some advice that you were getting from the network uh, at your university, because, um, you know, I think that's one of the most valuable assets of most entrepreneurship programs is this connection to people that are out in the field. So, um, you know, you're, when you talked about having a skill, that's something I've heard from a lot of, a lot of people. How did you define your skill? Because a lot of students that I talk to are, are kind of uncomfortable with that. They don't know what they can really contribute, especially right out of, right out of college or even out of a graduate program. It is so hard. And I'll actually combine this with entrepreneurship because I think they're the same answer. So a skill to me just equals something that someone will pay for. That's it. And so when I was freelancing in college, I was a finance and accounting major. And so I would say, hey, I'm a business major and a finance accounting major. So I'm happy to help you with your financials. I'm happy to help you with some um, like SWOT analysis and typical competitor analysis, literally anything that you can't afford right now, I will take over and I'll be okay at it because I'm just a student. And surprisingly, small businesses were more than willing to pay, you know, spend one to $5,000 for me to help with their financials, help with competitor analysis, those sorts of things. So that was sort of how I got my feet wet there. Now, what I learned real quick was that when you're actually going for a real job, yes, you have to have some more professional of a skill than that. So I actually jumped into sales 
but it wasn't planned sales. It was, I went to the company Gigster and said, I will do anything for you. And I already have your customers because I had been building a freelance marketplace prior. And then at Microsoft, I was a product manager. I wasn't a CS major. I didn't have any of the, the sort of skills I was supposed to have there, but I had built product in the freelance economy. So I always had the, the proof points before I had the actual like on paper uh, skills, you could say. And so, yeah, so I, I don't know the perfect way to answer that, but I know if someone's willing to pay you for it, then that's, you can call it a skill. And for me, it's always been having to prove that I've done it before or just saying, take a bet on me at a cheap ticket size and let's work for two weeks. And if you don't like it, cancel the contract. So I guess is that, I know that doesn't directly answer. No, that's, that. well, it's, you know, what I hear in that is that basically you just have to dive in there and test it just like we do everything else, really. You know, it's get an MVP of yourself out there, right? Build a brand about yourself and get an MVP out there. But I do want, I do wonder what was that first, who was that first client and how did you get that one? Because that's often the hardest one. And it's often the one that will kind of set in motion what happens after that. Yeah. So the first client was a manufacturing company in my hometown. And I had done a accounting internship for a, a brief while, I think back in my freshman year. And by accounting internship, I actually meant cleaning the closet, painting the walls, doing anything <laughs> that this manufacturing company needed. It was, I think it was like a 54 person manufacturing shop that just been bought. So anyone that could clean the closet, clean the walls, they were more than happy to help. So then I went back around and said, you know, hey, I can do contract work. And that actually turned into they were looking at a PE opportunity and they needed basically a lot of research to be refined and put into a presentation. And it was just similar things like that. Then similarly, just going business to business and literally saying, Hey, how can I help? This is what I can offer, putting that shingle out there. So it, it technically started with the full-time internship in the early days. Um, but you just kind of figured out. And, and, you know, I remember one actually with Babson when I was there, it was a networking event did the same thing and then turned into a, this was a big project in my eyes. It was a two month consulting project for them. So, you know, you just connection leads to connection. And, and in each opportunity, I did have the proof points. So with the first one, it was, all right, you've seen me, you know, that I'll show up to work. Right. And with the second one is here's a bunch of testimonials I have to the point that when I got my first real job at Gigster, I probably had five to 10 testimonials of clients as well as, uh, or of, of prior employers, as well as clients that I was bringing over to them. So that, I, again, it's, it's so, you know, what we're talking about here is launching the, the product of Matthew, right? And yeah. so for a lot of freelancers, you know, we work with a lot of students that are um, in the arts or in fields that have had freelancing for a long time. Um, and, and um, you know, the, so they're I wouldn't say they're uh, ready for what what's ahead of them, but um, they're 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 maybe uh, a little bit less surprised when they get out into the marketplace and find that they're uh, building their own personal brand and and creating their own product. But you know, for a lot of our students in business, you know, they're parents and they kind of think of themselves as you know uh, getting a job after they graduate and working, and many of them need that kind of experience. But um, 
but maybe they're not finding what they love or maybe when they get into that job, you know, it's, it's not what they love. So they're finding themselves like you doing project work and, um, you know, and, and building, building a, a freelance uh, career. So, you know, I'm curious about, about this whole space of freelance um, because there are, there are a lot of, you know, I see a lot of data now that, uh, you know, the numbers are just increasing dramatically. Um, you know, I think I saw a Fiverr report recently that it, even the salaries went up this past year. Of course, the cost of everything has gone up as well. But there's there's upsides and there's downsides to this whole space. And um, so I'm really curious, what have you seen? I think, you know, you've been in this space now for a few years. Uh, what, what have you seen and what do you what do you see ahead of us? Is is this, you know, changing the way we work? Because that's what your book, Human Cloud, I think, was all about. And uh, probably a lot's changed even since you published that book. You'd be surprised, actually. So it it released in 21 and it was it was handed over to the publishers in January of 20. And it was written technically, actually, probably for the past three years. Now we've we've been I was, I was, meeting, I was talking to my co-author this morning. We've been right about most of the trends, and most of them we thought would take ten years are now taking two years. Wow! So yeah, <laughs> so we we intentionally written it in a way that was let's let let's have this live forever, not just or let's have this live in twenty five to fifty years, not just let's have it be relevant exactly right now. Which thank God, right? Because we couldn't have predicted COVID. It was written before COVID. So let's let's start in defining the freelance economy because I think that's usually where people get lost and then we'll sort of put some numbers to it. And I think, I hope that when I give you the numbers, the answer of what's next will kind of come naturally rather than me just pontificating. So when we say freelance, what we really mean is the technology disruption that has enabled a model of work that is outside of traditional. And when we think traditional, think in office and full-time slash W2. And so for the past 50 years, it's been normal for people to just work for one company and go to the office. And sort of one by one, a lot of those norms have just been totally uprooted. And COVID, I would say, dismantled these norms. And so the first norm being remote work, people used to think we always had to go to an office. Now, 33% of workers are, are fully re are working remotely. The second thing in terms of working for one company, it's no secret that most people have either side gigs or have multiple opportunities. And so you still can work a full-time job, but from what we're seeing in the younger generations, I think over half are considering a path that has multiple opportunities, not just one job. So when we say freelance, we define it as remote first and flexible first with that flexible meaning it could be multiple clients. It could be one full-time and multiple, but it's not being tied down to having just one opportunity at one time. And so that's how we define it. Um, we think the overwhelming differentiation with freelance is that you can see the whites of the eyes of the people that you work with and your clients. And if we back into that, we get very boring because it turns into B2B professional service work, meaning designers, writers, developers, something where you're a B2B client serving type function. So that's how we define it. Now, the numbers. There is 36 million freelancers in the US right now. It is a $5.4 trillion market. 
and it's growing over 30%. And when we say growing, you can either say number of people freelancing or, or amount of money spent on freelancers in the US. And that 30%, I like to say no one knows, but directionally we can assume more than 30% growth year over year, significantly catalyzed by COVID. Um, when we talk about companies, over 90% of enterprise leaders are prioritizing freelancers. And the dirty secret of our industry is that most companies are already over half contractors. So Microsoft's 120,000 people. There's over 250,000 people because most are actually contractors, likewise with Google and most tech companies. And so we've always had this contractor workforce. It just hasn't been defined as a freelancer workforce. And so this is kind of, you know, it's not out of the blue. It's more about merging contract with freelance. So those are the numbers. Um, globally, there's over 100 million freelancers. The U.S. is leading the charge, but Europe is... I'd say very close. And then Asia, India, um, and the Middle East is around two to five years behind, depending on the region. So in terms of where it's going, uh, there's no there's no slowing it down. Now, governments are pissed off about it because it means loss in tax revenue. So over a trillion dollars will be lost in tax revenue if all of a sudden we were all freelancers. They're also pissed because it usually means less union memberships. And so there's also some countervailing forces in this, but I don't think there's any slowing it down. Uh, if you look at, like I said, the younger generations, people want multiple options. And that's the, at the core of what freelancing is. So I'll sort of stop there. But when you think freelance, just think flexible work. It doesn't mean you have to have multiple. It doesn't mean you have to be this free agent, right? Um, it more so means you have the flexibility to choose what you work on, how much work you work on, where you work. Which is, uh, as I'm hearing it from a lot of the the new the younger workforce, which uh, those are high priorities, the flexibility and and the you know, like you said, I mean, things accelerated because of the pandemic. Um, so uh, first of all, I'm I'm thrilled that you defined uh, the way that you think about the freelance economy. And I'm curious about all the different words that we use. So we use gig economy, we use freelance economy, we use sharing economy. Are those all the same or are there subtle or even not so subtle differences between those? So similar, similar. Um, but there are some overwhelming or there are some key differentiations. So we'll go gig versus freelance versus fractional. Let's literally, let's, let's stick with these three. So gig traditionally has meant high volume, low ticket size, high volume, meaning you're doing a gig a day or multiple gigs a day. And that is the typical Upwork, Fiverr, TaskRabbit, you're taking on multiple tasks. And that task might be you make a logo, that task might be you write an article, but you're doing multiple things. Now, freelance is not the opposite, but it's more so low volume, high cost or high ticket size. So that is you are a, instead of just doing a social media post, you're a social media manager making two to $3,000 a month or you're a developer uh, working 20 to 30 hours a week, or based off of an outcome, say you do a website that takes three months and costs 15 to $50,000. So freelance is sort of in the middle where it's, it's still independent. You're not working for one company. You most likely have two to five different clients at one time, but you're working as an extension of the team 
not just someone that's doing this piecemeal task-based work. Now, the third, and so traditionally the gig economy is what this industry started as, but very quickly it's not what this industry is because no one no one wants to do piecemeal task work, right? That is that is, and that is more so the Uber driving and sort of those models. But so we got gig, we got freelance. Now fractional is think more of the consulting and more of the three plus month executive level type work. And this is the quickest growing, uh, quickest growing segment of the freelance workforce. So if you think about me, if I were to get a job, I would have to be someone that's director level and above, and I would be managing teams. In a freelance capacity, I don't do all the work as an IC. I'm in my sweet, my, my, my sweet spot when I'm managing full teams and, and enabling outcomes at scale. So fractional is typically more of the director level and above type responsibilities that can 100% happen without that person working in one company. And so you start to see fractional CMOs, fractional VPs. This morning we just sourced one that was a fractional sales executive. And these are really expensive, but if you think about from a company's perspective, a salary is not the whole thing. It's usually 1.5 times what you act, uh, employee actually cost you. So that's how I would bucket it. You know, don't get too confused, but gig economy, freelance and fractional with freelance and fractional really being where the industry is going and gig economy kind of being like the dirty secret that no one wants to admit was there and we quickly want to get rid of. Yeah. So I think a lot of the challenges and the sort of negative um, impact of this, these economies that I've heard have come more from the gig side. But uh, I really appreciate that insight because I think it's kind of confusing for most people uh, when we talk about it because gig was gig economy was kind of the first um, that we started hearing about. Um, what, 10 years ago or so, you know, and, um, and so now what we're seeing is a real transformation, I think, of the workforce um, in, in many ways uh, to more of this kind of fractional work, as you pointed out, and, and uh, independent contractor. So uh, where, do, where do artists, musicians, um, how do they fit into all of this? Because it, I know a lot of the work you do sounds like it, it's more on the technical business services side. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong, but it sounds like that's the case. So do you have any insight on the, on, you know, the, the side, you know, the, the, the other side with artists and creatives? Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, is that growing as well? Or is it, you know, is it, has it been, is it kind of where it's been for a long time? Yeah. So this, so typically this is done by agencies. So the artist, the creative, you name it, typically they're working with an agency who's doing the contracting and the scoping for them. And what's increasingly happening is that is being taken over by the individuals themselves. So there's a great platform called Wethos where they are literally providing the agency infrastructure for individual creatives so that they can go head to head and compete against the agency that they were working with. And so if we look at a creative, what usually happens, and we'll use the example of a, like an ad campaign. So you have a creative producer, you have the actors, you name it, all these things. And what's usually happening is 
the company is signing a deal with X studio and they usually have some funny name, right? Like pick an animal and then put studio after it. And that's most likely what the deal is happening with. And it's going to cost them 50 to a million, you know, 50 K to a million dollars to get it done. Now, if you unpeel the onion, you see that all those individuals could be actually signing deals themselves for some of the work. And so the music, the actual production, you name it. And, and, this isn't my expertise, so give me a little uh, yeah, give, give me a little slack here. But so, what's increasingly happening is those individuals are able to do it themselves because the tools and technologies that prior those agencies, the work they were doing, technology can just take over. And so, things like invoicing technology, um, workflow technology, this is all stuff that individuals now have the power to. And so, for the artists, that is what's mostly happening. The influencers, to be honest, Rebecca, I don't, I don't know. That is so out of my lane. Like the 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 Instagram creatives, I just, I don't know. I know that, um, and I, I don't know if I said this before. So one of our clients actually is a university, and we help curate their students and do a network to then do freelance projects. And it is a very, very common task for things like TikTok videos and Instagram posts and reels and that kind of stuff. That is so out of my swim lane, but it's scoped like just like anything else. And so it is, Hey, do this TikTok video for $500, do this, do five reels for a thousand dollars. So it, it, I'd say, you know, you plug it into the professional service B2B type engine of how to do work. And it's increasingly the individuals are doing what used to take agencies. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love your response to that because I'm seeing a lot of that too. in in my research, um, one area is indie book writers. So, you know, it used to be that you had to have a publisher and your book wasn't taken seriously, but now we're seeing some of the, even the biggest names in fiction writing, for example, are, you know, indie publisher, independent publishers, uh, or independent authors. And so all these tools, um, you know, including a, AI are really helping them, um, you know, write their ad copy and uh, and uh, and all the software that's been developed platforms to help uh, help market and produce and build their community. And uh, so I think um, you know I think it's just really fascinating. There are just so many different um, ways to participate in the, the, these these um, independent. Uh, kinds of work uh, experiences that we're talking about, and uh, and and like you said, I mean the the influencers. That's you know that's that's a really interesting one because sometimes that's hard to predict and it just kind of <laughs> kind of happens. But there's a whole space around it now, of course. And um, so I, I study entrepreneurial mindset, and one of the things that you know on my podcast, I found more and more of the in the the entrepreneurs that I interviewed were um, were participating in some way in this in this work. They may have been working for somebody else, but but doing uh, projects and working on the side, or even building a company on the side, uh, or they may have you know maybe participating um, by like Gigster, for example, by starting a company that and yourself. Uh, 
you know, starting a company that kind of supports this space. So I'm very curious about your thoughts on an entrepreneurial mindset. And in, in my, I've done a lot of work looking at the competencies of an entrepreneurial mindset. And the three areas that I focus on are the ability to recognize opportunities, the willingness to take action, and the perseverance and resilience to execute past failure. So I'm curious uh, as to whether or not you believe an entrepreneurial mindset is important and valuable in this kind of workspace. It's, it's a really good question. So it's a really good question. And I think I would have to unpack, I would have to further define the entrepreneurial mindset, right? And so I think what will answer this, I think, is let me give you an example with our book of, of how we really embraced freelance models rather than going through the traditional agency. And then I think you're going to start to unpack an answer, I think. And I'll, I'll kind of preface it by saying, because I get this question a lot, right, of, of what, what makes an entrepreneur, what are the skills of an entrepreneur? And to be honest, my answer, and I always get the question of, you know, you're dealing with an audience of, of college students and younger people asking, hey, you know, talking about it like it's so sexy, right? Like I want to be an entrepreneur. My my answer, and I hope, hope it doesn't shock you too much, is I think entrepreneurship is a mental sickness where you have so much confidence and you are so mentally sick that you're willing to persevere through so many red flags of saying you should just get a job or you should just take the traditional path because in my experience, entrepreneurship is so much harder, so much more painful. You lose so much money. And a lot of times you just, I, it's not rational in, in any way. So, so, okay. So I'm going to give you the example of the book. And I think this will help you understand. And, and I'll preface it by saying as an entrepreneur, the, you know, what it, what it really takes is you have to be you have to be open to take on insane risk, but you have to be ruthless in mitigating that risk as much as possible. And the biggest, really the only risk is that you're going to run out of money. So you have to become a master at optimizing money efficiently, especially if you don't have a trust fund or something coming in that makes it inevitable. So, or long, but so with the book, we had an advance and we had a budget. And the expectation was that we would just trust the publisher for everything. So the editing, the, the cover, um, building the website, everything required for the book, it would just be an all-in-one package. And we did. We went with HarperCollins for a publisher who I would, I would totally do it again. But what we did was instead of saying, hey, you take care of everything, we took the money and we did it ourselves. And so we took, I forget the exact numbers, but the marketing budget was, say, $10,000. The expectation was they would do it, the web that would cover just the website. And we said, oh, no, hell no. Give us the 10. Two is going to go to the website. And then we have eight to play with because we knew how to engage freelance models for that. In terms of writing the book, I forget the exact one, but let's say it was between 20 and 30. We said, no, 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 no. We want to have our people. And so we hired a freelance project manager. We hired multiple freelance writers to massage, not to write it itself. And then we actually hired... Uh, multiple freelance SMEs. And so we, we had some comedians go into the book and then we had SMEs related to the technology itself. So that right there, uh, I think answers the question of, of what it takes to be an entrepreneur and, and really use the freelance economy to your advantage. The, the second way I'll answer it is by saying, 
as an entrepreneur, you have two options to, to keep money coming in. The first is you find customers. That is the goal. The second is you bring in investors. Typically, what the sort of sexy news shows you is, is entrepreneurs that bring in a lot of venture capital. And that's what usually gets the headlines. And I think Elizabeth Holmes is going to jail today uh, to show you sort of what happens if you keep chasing that too much. Yes. obsessed with it. But the client route is awesome and it is easier and you remain control you you retain control of your company and i've done both and i can tell you the making money from clients is way way better uh, in my you know in my experience so i gave you the first example of how to optimally optimize the capital that you have but the second one is that if you leverage freelance models specifically to get your first couple of clients it is a much easier foot in the door so if you're thinking i want to build this sexy software company Good luck getting those clients and good luck having the money to develop the software because it's usually going to take you 200 to a million dollars just to get an MVP out the door. Whereas if you leverage freelance models and you get your clients based off a freelance contract, you can have money in the door ASAP, which is what we do. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, I totally agree with you. I, I, you know, when I'm advising the startups that we work with in our center, you know, I always encourage them, if possible, to build their company on sales if they can. It's, it's, I agree with you. Um, there are times when an investor is the right choice. And I'm, I'm really curious. And inter- I mean, there's, I love your answer, um, but I'm really curious about. The, the fact that you are uh, you are now investing in freelance businesses. So tell me what your uh, are. How does that work? I mean, a lot of freelancers are independent. Um, you know, are you investing in projects? Are you investing in people or both? And and uh, and you know, how does that work? Because that's a whole new investment space. I think in a lot of ways. Yeah, so I, I think the freelance economy in itself is going to be an industry, and I invest in it as such. And what I mean by that is, if you were to talk about industries, you know, the drop-down menu, what, what's it called, where it's all the things? It's like retail consulting, you know, right? All the all the, yeah. the classification, right? The the national yeah. classification I, system. I think freelance will become its own industry, and currently, right now, there's we can call it two main business models. The first is a marketplace and the second is some sort of provider. And within those two segments, there's many, many businesses. And so I do two things. I angel invest and then I'm a venture partner at a firm that focuses on future work investments and they invest in around five freelance specific deals a year. So I angel invest with my own capital. And then when I need more money, I you know, work as a venture partner to get them the deal, usually at a seed round between 250 and 750. So for me, I honestly, I just look for extremely passionate founders that have done it before. And if, if the, to be honest, sometimes I don't even invest in the actual company or their actual business prop, uh, business proposition. I just straight up invest in the founders and do if I think they'll make it. And what I mean by that is I invested in September in a deal that was literally the company I created. They were doing the same thing. But the founders, it was a good, it was the right combo. It was a software developer and someone that came from McKinsey. So I knew they had access to insights and I knew that they were crazy because I had advised them for three to six months prior. And basically I said, whatever you do, here's the angel check. They ended up in six months pivoting to 
creating an AI uh, SDR expert. So fully, fully automated SDR using 100% AI models rather than a human. And I've never more believed in them since doing that. So I think that's the way to answer it. I've, I've also raised venture capital. And all I can say is if people think it's a science, it's not really. It's more of a relationship type thing than any hard science. Yeah, the the classic investing in the jockey, not the horse, right? So yeah. because, yeah, good people can really screw up. Uh, I mean, good people can do great things with a mediocre idea, but but folks that don't know what they're doing can really screw up a good idea. <laughs> so exactly. uh, well, that's really, I think it's really fascinating. And I, I, I want to dig in a little bit more into what you're doing with companies. So you started yourself as a freelancer and understood, I guess, some of the challenges the companies had and then also understood what it was like to be on the other side. So talk to us a little bit about Human Cloud and specifically, what do you do? And and um, is you know for for companies and 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 um, you know what can companies expect if they work with Human Cloud? Yeah, so we so at the high level, like the cheesy marketing spin is we accelerate the freelance economy. It means nothing, right? It's just super ambiguous and can't get us in trouble. But so we really do three things. I would say insanely well. We advise, we consult. And we connect. And so, and we have three sort of segments, which are enterprises, marketplaces, and providers. So, and it's all related to the freelance economy. So it's all, how do you actually use freelance models? So for enterprises, we scale freelance workforces. So people think it's simple that you just go to Upwork, use your credit card, and that's it. Uh, there's a lot that goes into it, especially at an enterprise level usually takes 12 to 18 months to even get a million dollars out the door of spending on freelancers. So we get in the weeds with enterprises and we're basically their independent advisor, but also their, their consultants making it happen. With marketplaces, we advise and we put them together with fellow marketplaces. And so this is how do they differentiate and how do they connect with the people they need to and same on the provider side, provider side. So sort of our end is we know since we've been in it for so long, that we've kind of become the default experts in the space. And we know that what we can do very well is scale a freelance workforce. And so we put all the parties together and we advise and we consult and we connect them. So so what kind of companies do you work with? Do you work with big companies, uh, small companies, uh, everything? Usually, usually big, usually big. Okay. We say, yeah, if they are usually 10,000 employees plus, for the most part, it's Fortune 500s and those you kind of know, they probably already are 30% plus uh, contractors. And so we kind of know our swim lane there. And when it comes to industries, we, we are agnostic, but we know which ones are ideal uh, for this. And then also a secret within enterprises is there's teams within enterprises. So just because you're working with Microsoft doesn't mean you're working with the right team at Microsoft. Um, so that's the enterprise side. And then the marketplace side, we kind of treat it like a venture studio model where we we work with the ones that we bet on. And so we never work with the same skill or region because we, we don't want competition. And the industry is so fragmented and large right now that seldom do we see competition. We more so see collaboration. So, so for a particular company, what are some of the big challenges that they face? I mean, you know, you mentioned that it looks easy, but it's not. So, so what are some of the bigger problems that you find that you have to help companies address? So, okay. So the biggest, the biggest one, 
is they can get sued for multi-million dollars. So in, I think, 1998, Microsoft got sued for $100 million with uh, contractor misclassification. Nike's on the hook right now for $545 million for contractor misclassification. Google had a walkout uh, by both contractors and their employees when word came out how they treated their contractors. So, I mean, that right there is just a nightmare for any organization. Um, But they know they need the access to these individuals, the speed it takes to bring a freelancer in versus a full-time employee or an agency. And so kind of within the enterprise game, you're always outweighing the benefits versus the risk, right? And for the most part, everything looks like risk to them. And so where we come in is really, really mitigating that risk while holding their hand to drive adoption. And so it's more so than just, hey, let's go like hire freelancers. It's actually a lot of the the program development, the infrastructure development, the connecting them with the right marketplaces and integrating them, helping them with the contracts, what kind of things are important in the contracts. If you don't have the right clause, you're out, right? If you have too many clauses, then you can do nothing. So, and then obviously, uh, or not obviously, but also helping them navigate the org themselves. And so we know the specific organizations to go into, specifically procurement, finance, HR, and a working team. We kind of seen so many things go wrong that we can predict what's going to happen. And if it does happen, sort of triage and mitigate it. But large companies, everything looks like risk, but they know they need to bring in freelancers. So we help them do it compliantly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a problem, uh, you know, a lot of small companies deal with um, as well, uh, contractor misclassification. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you have, your contractors have to be independent, really. Um, and that's, that's a hard, from a tax perspective, that's a hard, um, that's a hard uh, definition sometimes uh, to, to clarify. So for our audience, really, I mean, when you're talking about that, the, 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 they can't, Workers can't take all of their direction, right, from from a company. Would that be how would you define it? It's so funny. It's such a. Um, I would I would define classification as a needed waste of time. Um, and I say <laughs> I say waste of time because you can get in trouble for anything. But then I say needed because okay, it is kind of needed. And so classification at its core just means should this person be a full-time employee or should they be a contractor? And if a full-time employee, then the government wants its money. And so the government wants its, what is it, 7% of unemployment tax and payroll taxes. So when you're a contractor, the company doesn't have to pay that and you are on the hook for paying your own taxes. Likewise, if you're a contractor, you're not getting the various benefits. So the insurance, the, the, the PTO time, all those things you're not getting. Now, contractors choose that, right? So if you look at if you look at most contractors, they choose that. They know the risk and they are going out and getting health insurance themselves and those various things. But it doesn't matter. There's still a lot of uh, compliance risk. So I, that's how I would define it is, should they be a full-time employee or should they be a freelancer? There's also, when you talk about large companies, there's so many different points of risk. And so if you look at the security implications, as well as some of the mm-hmm. uh, compliance in terms of other factors, so GDPR in Europe is a general data protection so yep. something, right? Yep. Uh, basically, 4% of global revenues can be on the hook if a freelancer sees data that they shouldn't. So that's massive. Um, Security-wise, if a freelancer gets into a system they shouldn't, they might see something like a planned layoff and they release it to the press prior. They might see product rollouts, they release it to the press. 
honestly, these things can happen with full-time employees and agencies as well, but freelancers are harder to sue. And so it's generally perceived as massive, massive risk when hiring freelancers, which yeah, and I think I you know we're we're already seeing as the government sees more and more of the workforce moving into freelance, we're already seeing efforts uh, toward regulating it more and you know some of the issues that they've dealt with uh, out in California, for example, with with some of the companies. Uh, so um, so is there any other are there any other uh, big legislation issues that um, that you see on the on the forefront, and I know that that's kind of a loaded question. But um, you know, when you were writing your book, and as you look at the 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 this industry, do you see anything there that uh, anyone should be aware of? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. It's it's a how do I say it? We're in for a long we're in for a long complicated battle that I hope politics don't get involved, but you know they will, and so. There are three areas that we can't hire talent from. Guess what they are, Rebecca? I'll give you one hint. Iran is one and North Korea is the second. But guess the third area we can't hire talent from? Um, I'm not sure. California. <laughs> California. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I already mentioned California. Yeah. Not surprising. Yeah. So because California enact, so basically at its core, what some of these laws are trying, these laws are all trying to make sure they get their tax money. And then secondary, these laws are trying to make sure that unions aren't getting hurt. Yeah. And so freelancers don't join unions. It's just not, they, it doesn't happen. Um, they choose to be independent. They don't want to join a force of a union. And so I think politically what we're seeing is freelance is being used as kind of a, uh, a tool when they don't actually understand it. And so the current administration tried to implement the PRO Act, which was taking California's legislation and federalize it or nationalizing it. Yeah. That would have been a nightmare. It got struck down numerous times. Uh, likewise, the, the prior administration actually was the best for independent contractors. They took away, um, I forget if they took it away or they extended, but they basically made companies, ensured them that, okay, you're not going to get in trouble for hiring ICs. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, all I know is the industry is here to stay, and most likely what will happen is it just means you have to hire more lawyers, which unfortunately means that it'll be more expensive in terms of freelancers have to raise their rates. And most likely it'll be intermediaries like marketplaces that handle this for them. And so if my work, you rarely see an enterprise working directly with someone, there always has to be some sort of third party in the middle that's handling this for them. Yeah. Well, there's, uh, yeah, there's so much more that we could talk about. I love this. I mean, it's really interesting to see all these changes, AI, this, this fractional work and, um, and independent contractors and all the changes with legislation there, crypto, the space there. <laughs> so we've, we've got a lot of exciting things going on. And, and I love, uh, I love hearing about what you're doing. You're right in the middle of it. And, and congratulations. I, I wish we had more time to talk because I know you're building a company and there's a whole lot more there we could talk about. So I'd love to have you back on uh, and talk more about, about you as an entrepreneur and building your companies uh, and have another conversation. Uh, I hope we can do that. And uh, But before we go today, I, I'd love to ask you if you had one piece of advice for someone who wants to participate in this space, um, you know, maybe somebody, maybe the, 
the Matthew that came out of school a few years back, what would that one piece of advice be? Oh man, I would say, I would say just go for it and whatever you think you want to do, do it, but make sure someone will pay you for it. That'll be my one overwhelming advice. Um, I'm jealous of, in terms of if you all want to be entrepreneurs or you all want to be freelancers, I'm jealous on both fronts because it's never been easier uh, to be a freelancer or entrepreneur at any angle. There's even student freelance marketplaces. Companies now know they're okay with hiring a freelancer. When I started, my ex-girlfriend's family said he'll never be able to support you and we broke up. And so it's it was a different world even oh. five <laughs> years ago. Um, you know, so so I I can't tell you how how jealous I am of how much opportunity there is today. And I would just literally say, go for whatever it is you want to do, but make sure someone will pay you for it. And it's okay if they don't pay you today, but don't spend two years spending something no one pays you for. And, and you know what? Maybe do it if you can. I just, I could never do that. So I had to have rent paid for, but that, that'd be my overwhelming advice. Just, just go for it, get someone to pay you for it. That's great advice. Get out there and do it. And, uh, and you, you know, we're still talking about a business, right? You got to make money. So I, I think that's great advice. So how can our audience connect with you or find out more about your company, find your book, all of that? Yeah, books on Amazon. So if you search The Human Cloud, it should be the first thing that pops up. Uh, feel free to reach out to me directly on LinkedIn. And then our site is humancloud.org. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Rebecca. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more about entrepreneurship, we would love it if you hit that subscribe button. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of InFactor.